Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The latest from 7 News with Michael Usher. Good evening and welcome. Breaking tonight, major changes to COVID support payments in the coming weeks. We'll have the details from Canberra. Queensland on edge. Is lockdown inevitable and what it means for the NRL Grand Final? The restrictions easing across Victoria. In around an hour, we'll have the latest in Melbourne and live to London ahead of the premiere of Jane's Bond. No time to die. But we begin with breaking news. Out-of-work lockdown Australians are tonight learning their federal COVID disaster payments will soon be wound back. Now, political reporter Rob Scott's across the details from Parliament House. Rob, good evening to you. So, uh, a big development tonight as the vaccinations increase, the financial support will decrease. Yeah, that's right, Michael. Under the plan as it stands now, people receive $750 a week if they've lost more than 20 hours of work and $450 if they've lost between 8 and 20 hours of work. But those payments will start to soon taper off, triggered by vaccination levels. So once the state hits 70% double dose, the automatic renewal of those payments will stop and people will have to reapply each week. By 80%, the payments will start to step down over a two-week period before they end altogether. So in the first week, there'll be a flat $450 payment for those who have lost more than eight hours of work. In the second week, the payment will decrease to $320 a week. So that's in line with JobSeeker. The government says since the temporary COVID-19 disaster payment was introduced in June, it has helped to support around 2 million Australians with more than $9 billion paid out so far. Most of that, around $6 billion, has flowed to New South Wales, around $2.4 billion has gone to Victoria, and $263 million to Queensland. OK, so how's the government justifying the move? Well, as the country starts to open up under the national plan, the expectation is that the jobs will return and so people can get back to work. So hopefully there'll be no need for these payments. And of course, long term, shelling out these huge amounts of cash just isn't sustainable. But for those who can't find work by the time the disaster payments dry up, the government says they can still rely on the social security system. Michael. All right, Rob. Thank you for that. And here's how we're tracking in reaching those vaccination goals across Australia. It's looking good. In the past 24 hours, more than 303,000 vaccines were administered across the country. That means our national total of vaccines is well past 27 million. At this rate, 70% of the population will be fully vaccinated by the 24th of October and will reach that 80% target on the 7th of November. We have more breaking news. Two alleged border breaches charged tonight with sneaking into Perth from Melbourne to watch the AFL Grand Final. And the concerning development, one of them has returned an inconclusive COVID test. Melbourne restaurateur Hayden Burbank and his friend Mark Babbage are right now in custody. Police are accusing them of going to great lengths to get into WA via Darwin, falsifying documents and lying on entry passes. So to say that this is disappointing is an understatement. How people could knowingly put others at risk in these times is selfish and contemptible. The pair is in court tomorrow morning. If found guilty, they could be jailed for up to a year and each fined $50,000. 
Also developing details coming to hand tonight, two new COVID cases reported in northern New South Wales minutes before Byron and the Tweed are set to emerge from a week-long lockdown. One infection's been reported in Byron Bay, another in Kyogle, it's about an hour west. We'll see tomorrow if the lifting of the stay-at-home orders there will be short-lived and whether their inclusion in the border bubble with Queensland also comes to a prompt end. A lockdown for South East Queensland is a live option being considered by health chiefs after four mystery COVID cases sprung up tonight. No shutdown just yet, but any further spread and the state's top doctor says it may force their hand. Of course, I always consider a lockdown and then I work through what we need to do. At this stage, I do not think a lockdown is warranted. That could change. All right, Alex Lewis is our reporter live in Brisbane. Alex, good evening to you. Let's just start with the news just in and new exposure sites. Which ones to look out for? Good evening, Michael. That list of exposure sites continues to be updated tonight uh, with a number of new venues in Spring Hill. These are the Hill Station Restaurant and Cafe, Domino's Pizza and Brands Pharmacy. Uh, anyone who's been to those places at the times on your screen uh, should isolate and get tested immediately. But the area of most concern to authorities today uh, is the Adlong Student Guest House, where that COVID-positive truckie was staying most recently. A number of bedrooms there are shared, as are the kitchen and bathroom facilities. So as a precaution, uh, health authorities have sent uh, more than a dozen of his fellow guests into hotel quarantine tonight. Now, a second cluster that authorities are keeping a close eye on involve an aviation worker at Eaton's Hill, a man in his 30s who, along with his wife, have tested positive. Now, it's understood the man caught the virus while uh, training with international pilots at a flight simulator uh, facility in Pinkenbar. They have a child, but so far that child has tested negative. Uh, however, the child daycare centre, which they attend, is an exposure site as well. The fourth mystery case uh, announced by authorities today in Queensland is that of a return turned international traveller uh, from East Timor who tested positive for the virus five days after completing two weeks uh, hotel quarantine. Uh, at this stage, we don't know what variant any of these clusters are. Um, we have managed to dodge lockdown so far. However, mask restrictions uh, have been um, tightened across Brisbane and Moreton Bay yeah. for at least the next fortnight, Michael. I think the authorities would be staggered if it was anything but Delta in terms of the variant. And that truckie was uh, infectious for at least a week out there. So that is going to be a, a watch and see in the morning. But th that truckie is not the first, Alex, to pass through Queensland. But it is a case that's certainly spooked the state government into some action now. Yeah, it sure has, Michael. Uh, he was, in fact, the seventh COVID-positive truckie to cross our border since late August. Uh, he wasn't vaccinated, uh, and that's prompted authorities to crack down on vaccinations in the industry. Um, they'll be mandating them. So from the 15th of October, a truckies entering Queensland must have had at least one dose, and then a month later, on the 15th of November, they must be fully vaccinated. Authorities are setting up some roadside vaccine clinics to help boost those numbers. They'll be given priority at any of the state's vaccination centres. Um, but as well as the mandates, they'll come with some more freedoms for the truckies who do travel from interstate. Instead of being bound to their accommodation, they'll be allowed to move around freely in the community. So a somewhat of a carrot and stick approach there, Michael, in an industry which does have one of the lowest vaccination rates. All right. Alex Lewis there in Brisbane. Thank you. Queensland's outbreak has cast serious doubt over the NRL Grand Final. Just days away from the biggest night in the rugby league calendar, Chief League reporter Michelle Bishop standing by with more on this story in Queensland. Michelle, good evening to you. Now, this has gone back and forth all day. Let's try and understand what the truth is at the end of the day. What's the latest you've heard tonight? 
Well, uh, good evening, Marsh. It started this morning. Um, Rumours were flying thick and fast about, uh, of course, the NRL grand final being moved. But I think this afternoon is where it got uh, pretty serious. Queensland's uh, Chief Health Officer, Dr Jeanette Young, she sort of put it out there that she actually won't be making a call on whether or not uh, the grand final will move because she's going to watch the next 48 hours. They've got four local cases. And, look, I guess, you know, she's just caring for, for yeah. the locals here in Queensland. But could you imagine the chaos of leaving that decision right up until grand final day? I mean, worst case scenario, probably the option there would be to have no crowds. But at the moment, the NRL, they're extremely confident that the uh, grand final will go ahead mm. at Suncorp Stadium. And look, it'll be the first time in history. It will be. So what's plan B, as you mentioned there? Suncorp with no crowd or move it all together? No, look, they've got a plan B. Oh, look, I'm sure they've got a C and a D and an E and an F. Given this environment, it's just crazy. But the, uh, they've always been quite upfront about what plan B would be, and that would be to move the game to Townsville. Uh, it'd be pretty unfortunate because, of course, Suncorp Stadium has that uh, capacity crowd of 52,000. And, of course, uh, Country Bank Stadium can only hold uh, half of that. It's been quite successful. We've seen an origin there, so I wouldn't rule it out altogether. But at the moment, that is their, their plan B. But I'm, I'm sure that everybody, the fingers crossed, all the fans, of course, South Sydney and Penrith, they all want to have this grand final uh, at Suncorp Stadium on Sunday. The Sydney showdown in Queensland, it's going to be a cracker. But let me ask you this, the players themselves, just so everyone at home understands, are they still in bubbles anyway? Are they affected by this? No, this won't affect the players whatsoever. Obviously, in terms of their preparation, they're still very much in their bubbles. Um, speaking to some of the players today, I was talking about what they do on that you know, hour, hour and a half journey to Suncorp Stadium. Mm. That would uh, dramatically change because they'd obviously have to uh, hop on buses and planes. So it'd throw them out in terms of their preparation, but they're professionals and they get the job done. So the Bunnies are obviously going to win by how much, Michelle? <laughs> oh, <look>. Loaded question. <laughs> Very extremely loaded, considering yeah. I'm going to spend the day with the Panthers tomorrow, Marsh. OK, you better be diplomatic then. Don't give your prediction. We'll ask you that on Thursday night. We'll bring you back. All right, Can't Michelle wait. Bishop on the Gold Coast. Thank you. I'm joined now by Professor Mary Louise McClaws, an epidemiologist and advisor to the World Health Organisation. Mary Louise, good evening to you. As you were just maybe hearing our reporter there, crowds of 50,000 expected in Suncorp Stadium. Uh, a potential super spreader event waiting to happen, in your opinion? Absolutely. Uh, it will be a super spreading event if any of the contacts who haven't been identified yet by the Department of Health uh, attend um, that uh, event uh, because they could be in that early contagious phase. But if the authorities have um, identified all contacts, uh, then they may um, dodge the bullet, so to speak. But it's very uh, unlikely that the Department of Health will have been able to find nearly everybody. So let's hope that the odds are against somebody in that contagious phase attending. Knowing how Delta works, and although they haven't sent the variant, I mean, we have to believe it is Delta at this stage, and that instance, as you were hearing then, of the truck driver, which is the most concerning in shared accommodation in various motels or hotels over the period of at least a week, isn't that all the hallmarks of a rapid spread and what New South Wales experienced very early on in its outbreak? Yes, uh, Delta has two days less incubation period, so people are very infectious early on. Mm. 
So if there's been five days, somebody who has been infected in that early phase could actually be contagious now and spread it to potentially um, people who will go to that event. And I'll just remind everybody that it's been 104 days since we had one case. And now we have, I don't know, 55,520 cases. Uh, it's quite a shock, isn't it? So you, yeah. Queensland should be learning from New South Wales. Uh, they're normally highly precautious. Um, so I'm surprised that they are not highly precautious in this particular instance. Well, Marie-Louise, the criticism is that the Premier has uh, a prize this weekend in the NRL Grand Final and there may be some hesitancy to act and uh, rather than jeopardise it. I might be being cynical, others might be being unfair in their criticism, but would you agree with that? Well, I'd suggest that her um, her choice of not locking down for a few days is out of out of context. Mm. So uh, maybe this idea of this you know super event, this uh, fun event, may be swaying her uh, good judgment. And look, if it does get cancelled or postponed, and it will be very disappointing if nobody gets infection. But in fact, it should be seen the opposite. Isn't that great um, mm. that we? you know, responded so that Queensland can get its vaccination rates up fast before they have to start doing two things, get the vaccination rate and fight the virus. Yeah. All right, look, some other news, Mary-Louise. Let's talk about this. The Federal Health Secretary announced that home testing kits could be available within weeks. These are the rapid antigen testing, RAT they're called. Is it better late than never? It's great news. And uh, yes, it's better late than never. It's great news. So, you know, uh, the previous story we were talking about, uh, that the, the truck driver coming in and spreading it, quite frankly, these uh, rapid antigen tests or rat tests could be used at the border, on either side of the border at, say, the truck weighing um, uh, stations, and uh, then their result uh, goes onto their smartphone or uh, a certificate. And by the time they get to the border, you know, they've got they've got proof that they're not putting anybody at risk. Yeah. So rapid antigen tests are particularly good at identifying you as truly negative. Now, low income countries use them for diagnosis, but we've never suggested that they should be used for diagnosis. They're great for screening. Yeah. If you want to come into the state carefully, if you want to go to mass events, although the football is too huge an event to be able to use these. But um, if you're concerned that you've been exposed, you can use them. And one of the criticisms is, oh, well, it's not as accurate as a PCR. Well, I'll just remind you that you can get some that are very close or act actually at 100% accuracy for um, your, you being labelled truly as negative and you really are. Mm. If you use them as um, repeat testing in, say, a workplace, all you have to do is two repeat tests, you know, after each day or, or every maybe second day, and it reaches the same level of accuracy as the PCR. So it's great news, and they're a fraction of the price of a PCR, but they shouldn't be considered to be taking the place of a diagnostic test. But very briefly on this, uh, we should get used to them though because they're used almost daily in large parts of Europe now as they go about their daily lives, right? 
Correct. So England's been using them for quite some time and they've been able to track um, either stubborn um, areas of, of COVID or not, you know, not being able to answer why they can't get rid of COVID. Yeah. Uh, Singapore is now giving it out to, to um, households uh, for them to check themselves, the EU. I mean, we're a little bit behind, uh, but I'm so delighted that this is being used now. Let's talk about in New South Wales the hospitalisation rates that have not peaked as high as the modelling predicted. Now that's a it's a good thing. We're not complaining about mm. it. But do you think it's time to move away from relying on the modelling, or just explain what has happened here? Yes. Look, um, outbreak is not normally dictated by models. Models are used to help make plans: how many beds you might need, how many staff you might need to train, mm. how many. PPE, um, uh, you know, masks you might need to purchase. Um, it should not be used uh, except for with living um, data, such as we're living the data now so the Victorians can watch what's happened in New South Wales. Uh, we could watch what was happening in Singapore when they opened up too fast with uh, too few people being vaccinated. That's how you better handle an outbreak. Uh, so, And also, I'll remind you that the over 60 um, in New South Wales with Delta, 41% of that age group got hospitalised. But in New South Wales, we now have that age group fully vaccinated at 76%. So as more and more of that older group get vaccinated, you'll see hopefully less and less um, uh, ad admissions to hospital. Yeah. You, you will occasionally get breakthrough infection, but you won't see that enormous demand on um, on hospital beds and certainly not ICU. What's your view of the vaccination rates around the country at the moment, Mary Louise? I mean, if you go back to February, March, we were in all sorts of grief. There was no supply. It wasn't being distributed mm -hmm. at all. Now we're sitting at, in some areas some quite extraordinary vaccination rates with some to catch up. But what's your take on yeah. it? Oh, look, I think Australians are amazing. Um, I, I've never believed in vaccine hesitancy. Sometimes people take a while to make a decision. And so they put off the decision to, I don't know, change jobs or have a vaccine. But in a pandemic, they can't take that time. They actually have to um, decide faster than they normally would. And there's very, very, very little um, anti-vaxxers in Australia. It's really rare. So I'm absolutely delighted that the numbers are increasing every day. Um, the group that I am concerned about are the 16 to 39-year-olds. They've only had the vaccine since the beginning of September. Now, at the moment in Australia, they're only about 32% have been fully vaccinated in New South Wales, 45%, and in Victoria, only 22%. So that's the group that really should dictate when we open up. So when we talk about opening up at 80% or 90%, it's actually that group because they represent over 50% of cases with Delta yeah. and they've always carried most of the burden of infection with or without the Delta, you know, with the, um, the wild strain. And they're the group that you want to vaccinate fast so that they don't catch it and they don't give it to, to anybody else. Um, so I'm hoping that the uh, distance between dose one and dose two of Pfizer goes back to 21 to 28 days so that we can cover yes. that group very rapidly. All right. Uh, always great to talk to you, Mary Louise McClure, and good to have some uh, solid vaccination numbers to talk about as well. So thank you for your time. Yeah. Stay safe. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. We're about an hour away from seeing restrictions wind back even further in Victoria. The state tomorrow is set to hit another vaccination goal. Our reporter Estelle Greepink is live in Melbourne for us. Estelle, good evening to you. What is changing at midnight? Good evening to you, Michael. Well, quite a few things, but they all relate to outdoor activities pretty much. And unfortunately, Melbourne's weather isn't looking too good for the next few days. So we'll have to wait a while before we can really enjoy the easing of these restrictions. In Melbourne, it means the travel bubble will go from 10 kilometres to 15 kilometres. Golf and tennis will be back on. And we'll also be able to go to a PT session outdoors with five people. In the regions, masks can come off at hairdressing salons and 30 people can dine outdoors. Now, the easing of these restrictions comes as the border between New South Wales and Victoria is being reviewed and South Australia says that they will let fully vaccinated Victorians into their state once they hit their 80% vaccination target. So some good news there, Michael. Yeah. Soon, hopefully, we'll be able to travel more than 15k. Well, that would be good. Good news in the city, but it's still tens of thousands of people in regional Victoria. They're about to go into lockdown. Who's affected? Well, it's people living in the city of Latrobe. They're going to go into a seven-day snap lockdown in just under an hour, and that is because there's been new cases identified there. It's believed they're linked to an illegal home gathering that happened over the weekend. At last count, there were 22 active cases there, and it is expected because of fears of ongoing transmission that we will see new cases tomorrow. So health teams are travelling up there tomorrow, and anyone in the area who has any symptoms is being urged to get tested. Michael? All right, it's still Group Inc. in Melbourne. We thank you for that. Outdated laws are making the legal process tricky tonight in the case of a prison escapee who turned himself into Sydney police after almost 30 years at large. A lawyer for Darko Desic says sentencing legislation from the time of the jailbreak, that was in 1992, no longer exists, asking a court for clemency, saying Desic is rehabilitated. Whether clemency is granted will be known in a month. And next year's NRL season's already off to a rocky start for three Melbourne Storm players. Cameron Munster, Brandon Smith and Chris Lewis are set to miss the opening of the 2022 competition filmed at a hotel room table with a white substance. The Storm boss tonight saying all three are cooperating with the Integrity Unit investigation. Australia's agriculture industry is experiencing a bumper year. It's really good news with the sector's profits expected to surpass $70 billion for the first time ever. Our network finance editor Gemma Acton joins me now to have a talk about this. These are really good numbers to go through, uh, Gemma, and it's a great underlying success story in Australia right now whilst we're all preoccupied with COVID. What is driving this agricultural bumper year? Yeah, you're right. It's so good to talk about a positive news story coming out of this sector after I've spent so many years talking about the drought. Yeah. Uh, and it is a continuation. Last year was around 66 
$6 billion of output for the sector. This year they're forecasting $73 billion. A lot of it is to do with favourable weather conditions and climate, which is certainly helpful. Uh, but if you look at the meat uh, industry, for example, looking at around $33.5 billion worth of output this year, there is really high international demand for protein, which fortunately has coincided with our livestock herds being rebuilt to a large degree. If you look at fruit and vegetable, it's a similar good news story around $12 billion, which would also be a record, is the forecast there. And then if you turn to grains, we've been really lucky on the weather side, but a lot of our biggest competitors, the US, Canada, Russia, have actually had droughts themselves. So for particular crops, uh, for example, canola, which uh, is one of Canada's key exports, uh, because they've had a difficult time, it's even better news for for our mm. producers here. Yeah, they've had crops wiped out there, haven't they? They have. Yeah. Uh, and around the world, partly because of these um, weather effects, we're seeing really high prices for, for many global agricultural commodities. Canola prices are ridiculous. I mean, it's like gold. They were up. I don't know whether it's measured in a ton bushel or whatever it is, but it was up near $1,000. They're really strong, and that's particularly good news for us because a lot of the demand yeah. that would have gone to Canada is now coming towards and us. Beef prices are good too. Exports beef. are strong. So dairy prices, it's, it's yeah. a really, really good period for us. All right. So in the first, for the first time in quite a while, we can say, it's, 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 as you said, we've been sitting here for so long talking about how bad it has been uh, for farming and agriculture, but it's pretty good to be a farmer generally right now. I mean, it is. There's always caveats, though, of aren't course. there? Nothing's of perfect, course, particularly of farmers. <laughs> you always think of them having um, yeah. difficult times. Well, look, there's been, there's been problems. There's been you know, mice plagues. We've had COVID-related problems like shipping costs uh, are very high at the moment. Labour shortages has been an ongoing problem with not being able to bring people into the country to help with picking, particularly when it comes to mm. fruit and vegetables. And yes, we have had favourable weather conditions, but there's still the odd burst which really disrupts uh, some areas. So, for instance, mm. in Western Australia recently, they had a really bad frost that's knocked out some of their wheat crop, which has been difficult. And in the backdrop, we can't forget, again, we haven't talked about it so much recently, but the export situation with China slapping on yep. those very strong tariffs a couple of years ago, Many Australian exporters and industries have done a fantastic job of uh, rebuilding customer bases in other countries, but China still, even after this, accounts for around a fifth of our exports. So it's not something you can replace overnight. It's a multi-year process, and certainly yeah. some industries like wine and barley uh, are still much more badly affected. And speaking of replacing overnight, I mean, for all those farmers, particularly in the, in the beef industry, uh, sheep as well, who lost so much stock during the drought, they've had to restock they and have. spend a fortune. They have. And yeah, those prices up. are really high as well. Yeah. So um, the rebuilding is going really well, but they're paying the price for it. Nearly two years after the original release date, tonight the red carpet will finally be rolled out in London for the star-studded premiere of No Time to Die. But the delay has come at an eye-watering cost for the film's producers. So, Jem, how much has the film delay actually cost? Well, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly these numbers, but no doubt running into the hundreds of millions of dollars uh, because there are so many different things racking up expenses. If you start by looking at financing, the general way to finance a film is to take out a loan and then you pay it back when the cash comes in uh, from the sales. But obviously that hasn't happened. Filming happened back in 2019. It still hasn't opened. So we're looking at uh, more than $1 million a month Gee, as man. an estimate. Yeah. And then you think about the marketing campaign. This film has now been delayed five times times in terms of its release and Bond never goes light on its global marketing campaigns. They're extremely expensive, easily hundreds of millions of dollars each and it didn't run a full-blown marketing campaign every single time it was delayed but two of the times it certainly did uh, so that would have been also extremely costly. Another really interesting uh, expense for them is product placement. Think about a Bond film, how many 
luxury cars, swanky watches, latest gadgets and technology mobile phones. When that was filmed back in 2019, everything they showed was the latest version. <laughs> Two years later, a lot of these have been interesting point. updated. And yeah. so if it's fine if you need to reshoot, you know, James Bond looking at his watch, not so fine if you need to reshoot a big car chase or something like yeah. that in a, in a luxury car. So uh, certainly lots of expenses. Still going to be extraordinary though, and I cannot yes. wait. Yes. Um, we cannot underestimate though, the cost of delay um, to the whole cinema industry. It's almost like the whole industry is looking at this film, No Time to Die, as a... As a salvation. Salvation. If <laughs> they can get going and say it's going okay, then they'll start really... Because there's a whole catalogue of films that are waiting for proper release in cinemas, aren't there? There are. I mean, poor cinemas, they've had the such a rough time. Um, many films which they thought were going to go to cinema first have ended up going to streaming over the last couple of years. And the extent to which customers have embraced screening is obviously horrifying for anyone who operates a cinema. So you're quite right, Bond is their chance to mm. win people back over. And the initial signs are really promising. So it's opening in the UK and Ireland, this will be the opening weekend, at around 700 cinemas. Some of them are even rolling the film back to back in screenings because there's so much demand. Uh, the operator of one big cinema chain was saying that in the last five years only two films have had more promising advanced ticket sales in the first yeah. 24 hours so people definitely want to see it there's appetite there and if there is a draw card to bring people back to the cinema and convince them that it's worth watching this on a big screen uh, bond's always such a spectacle that it, it does give them a good a good shot uh, look i'm biased because i love the films i love the <laughs> franchise so i'll be you know i will be going to the <laughs> cinema to, to watch it but I'm also sick and tired of watching stuff at home. I don't want to sit at home and watch That's anything. So when I can, I want to get out. I think so. cinema operators are hoping people will uh, Even if they're not that a fan, contrast I think as well. Okay. Yeah. All right, Jim, thank you. Thank you. Our Europe correspondent, Sarah Greenolch, is live outside the Royal Albert Hall. Sarah, good evening to you. I'm a bit jealous of where you are right now. I think that would be a fantastic place. <laughs> Quite the guest list turning out there in the coming hours. It sure is, Michael. Good evening. Uh, we were just saying the last time that we were here for a red carpet event outside Royal Albert Hall was for the BAFTA Awards in February 2020. Little did we uh, know what was ahead at that stage. Yeah. At the moment, this afternoon, it is all systems go behind these barriers with workers getting uh, ready for this glitzy world premiere. In attendance will be the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, Prince William and Kate, along with Prince Charles and Camilla. They will be rubbing shoulders with Daniel Craig, James Bond himself, uh, his co-stars, including Rami Malek and singer Billie Eilish, who is singing the theme song for No Time to Die. There's also some health workers coming from the NHS and members of the armed forces who have been invited here to thank them for all that they've done over the past 18 months. This is the 25th uh, film in the Bond franchise. It is Daniel Craig's fifth and final movie as James Bond. He's not giving anything away, Michael, at this stage about who his replacement is and neither is the movie's producer. She says she's not even going to start thinking about it until next year. I tell you what, Sarah, I mean, any Bond release, particularly Daniel Craig's last starring role as the character, was always going to be big, but this has been a long time coming for fans of this franchise, and this, this movie's taken on something much more than just the release of a Bond film. It's like the debut of films all over again back in cinemas. Oh, 100%. Uh, the journey to get to this stage, to the world premiere, is almost as dramatic, Michael, as the movie itself <laughs> promises to be. This is being seen uh, by many as the first chance for the cinema industry, the film industry, to really recover. Uh, and already there's some really good signs here in the UK with advanced ticket sales at a level not seen since 2019, pre-pandemic. One of the cinema chains over here, Odeon, has reported selling 175,000 tickets. Uh, some of those screenings are sold out, so really good 
good news. Obviously, one movie isn't going to change everything, uh, but it's what everyone has been waiting for, and it's certainly going to help. Uh, and this is, uh, well, people here are a lot luckier than uh, you guys in Australia at the moment. It comes out in cinemas on Thursday. Michael, Aussie fans are going to have to wait until the 11th of November. And as well as being the longest wait for a Bond film, it is also the longest Bond film ever, two hours and 43 minutes. So hopefully, fingers crossed, worth the wait. Are we letting you go in inside and watch it or are we sending you off to do a serious news story after this? Because if you are, I will really be jealous if you get to watch it as well. No, sadly, serious news story. Okay, so all right. Not total jealousy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, go and chase another COVID story or something in that region. All right, your correspondent, Sarah Greenolch in London. Thank you. Senior CIA officials discussed abducting and assassinating WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange during the Trump administration. That's according to a new report. A US News source quotes former officials who claim CIA director Mike Pompeo was furious about leaks involving the agency and wanted to take action. The CIA has so far declined to comment on those claims. The R&B singer R. Kelly has been found guilty of racketeering and nine other charges by a US jury. Hours of graphic and very disturbing testimony were heard during the six-week trial. Prosecuting lawyer Gloria Allred described R. Kelly as, quote, the worst predator she's ever pursued. The singer's now facing the prospect of decades behind bars. Now, Gemma's here with a look at the markets. Thanks, Michael. Well, there were more suggestions today that the global share market rally that has now extended for well over a year may be running out of puff. Hong Kong stocks jumped, still on relief that the Chinese government and central bank are stepping in to help the property market, but elsewhere it was a sea of red. And it is looking like more of the same on Wall Street, with the tech-heavy Nasdaq pointing towards the greatest losses. Amid the negativity, oil stands almost alone with the price cracking back through 80 US dollars and hitting a three-year high. That's on a continued supply crunch while demand keeps growing. And the Aussie dollar broached 73 US cents earlier but has now sunk back well below. Michael. Thank you, Gemma. Well, thank you for your company this evening. From all the team here at 7 News, that is the latest. I'm Michael Usher. Have a good night.